from the book of Romans, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. There's an old tradition in the church, an unwritten tradition, where on Mother's Day we honor the tireless work of the mothers, and on Father's Day we shame the heck out of the fathers. And uh, I am not one to break with tradition. So, I've got a question for you. In, in order, what are the three highest attended church services in the course of a year? What's the first one? This, is, this should be an easy one. Easter, right? What's the second one? Christmas. And the third? Mother's Day. Absolutely. Okay, so now this is a leading question. What is the lowest attended church weekend of the entire year nationwide? Father's Day. It's lower than uh, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Fourth of July weekend. I mean, it is the, it is the actual bottom, uh, which I laugh about that, but that's a real shame. Um, it sounds like the mothers are the ones who want to lead their family into faith in the presence of God, and the fathers are the ones who would much rather be golfing or fishing. And so, I've got a question about this for you, though. Just how influential are the fathers in the spiritual lives of their households? How, just how much influence do these absentee, as far uh, not maybe not absentee fathers, certainly absentee from the church fathers have? Well, let's take a look at this. I did some digging on this this week because I was really curious about this question. Here's, here's some numbers for you. If the mother is the first person in a household that's converted to Christianity, there's a 17% chance that her family will follow. If a father is the first person in a household converted to Christianity, there is a 93% chance that the household will follow. Here's another one. Uh, if a father does not go to church... Even if the mother is a regular attender, there is a 2% chance that that child will be a regular church attender. But if the father does regularly go to church, there is about a 70% chance that the child will be a regular church attender. You see, what does this mean? Like it or not, whether or not they take responsibility, fathers are the spiritual leaders of their homes. And I know that's not a popular thing to say in, in this day and age, but the statistics bear it out. The fathers will be leading their family somewhere, and it will either be away from the church or into the presence of God. Speaking of which, and this, by the way, is the worst transition in history, um, today is also Trinity Sunday. Uh, and Trinity Sunday is one that's particularly difficult to preach because it's impossible to use a metaphor to describe the Trinity without, without falling into some form of heresy. You cannot describe the Trinity without falling into heresy. You see, typically Father Chris takes this Sunday in order to preach, but I think after year three he's finally given, you know, taken the training wheels off and given me a shot at least at trying to describe the Trinity and preach on the Trinity. So here we go. Uh, First of all, let's think of some metaphors that people might have used in Sunday school to describe the Trinity. Here's one. Ready? You ever hear this one? God is like H2O. Has anybody ever heard this one? God is like water. God's like H2O. You know, sometimes God is uh, liquid, you know, sometimes uh, gas, and sometimes, uh, you know, ice, right, to describe God. You know, all one substance but different forms. Is that, is that accurate? What do you think? Nope. Heresy. 
Untrue, false, not right. That's actually a heresy called Sibelianism or modelism. Here's another, here's another swing at this. God is like a three-leaf clover, you know, different petals or, or leaves and, and one stem. What do you think? You think that's accurate? Nope, heresy. Heresy again. That's a heresy called tritheism, which makes God too separate and too distinct and doesn't describe that God is in, the Holy Spirit is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. Here's one more shot. And by the way, I'm dreading trying to describe the Trinity to my two sons because I have no idea. But let's try again. The Trinity is like a Venn diagram. You know, you know those, right? You got, you got the Father, and then you've got the Son, and you've got the Holy Spirit, all kind of, you know, partially in each section, but really come together in the center as God. What do you think? Accurate? Heresy. heresy. Thank you, Father. Heresy. Yeah. I mean, he's going to pull me in a second. Um, heresy. It's not true. That's, part, that's a heresy called partialism. There is no way to actually describe the Trinity. Um, and, and if you're, by the way, if you're a Sunday school teacher out here and you've used these examples to teach your kids, uh, you're a heretic. I'm sorry to say it. I love you. Um, God will forgive you. But, th- but those aren't true. They're not accurate. Uh, the Trinity is impossible to explain. And it only makes sense, by the way, that God is beyond our understanding. Of course it makes sense that God is beyond our understanding. You know, it's like we're 2D creatures and someone's trying to describe a 3D world to us. You can't do it. You can't do it. In fact, in fact, even our natural world, the world that we live in, the world that we're experiencing right now is beyond our comprehension. Even this world, this room is beyond your comprehension in the natural world. For example, There are animals that can see colors that we cannot see, like birds of prey, for example. Did you know that? There are colors that you have never seen and cannot see because your vision is limited. There are colors in this room that you cannot imagine. Isn't that unbelievable? The natural world's outside of your understanding. Your goldfish can see ultraviolet and infrared light. You can't. Yeah, you should put that goldfish in a place of honor in your home now, right? So there's some newfound respect for the goldfish. Uh, How about hearing, for example? Your hearing can hear up to, the top end of your range is about 20 kilohertz. Top end range of your dog is 60. That means that there are sounds in this room that that you're completely oblivious to. You cannot comprehend, you're unaware of. And if that doesn't blow your mind, and look this up, you can fact check me on this. I mean, I fact check myself pretty extensively because it sounds so bizarre, but an elephant can hear clouds moving. Think about that for a second. So what's incredible about our natural world is that even this place and this room and this building, there are sights and sounds and smells that are happening all around us that we're completely unaware of. And if that's the natural world that we exhibit, how far beyond our comprehension is the Trinity? How far beyond our comprehension is God? See, so of course there's a supernatural God whose ability is beyond ours to comprehend, but, but, there are ways in which he makes himself known to us. Ways that he describes himself as the Father and as the Son and as the Holy Spirit. And in these ways, we're able to bond with him and enter into a relationship with him. 
We're able to gain access into the person of God and experiencing Him fully. So let's turn to our text for today in Romans chapter 5. It's brief, and it's in your bulletins. And if you want to look at this with me, we're just going to focus on the first part of this passage for this morning. I'm going to read it again for us, or just partially. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We're going to focus on three words, peace, access, and grace. Peace with God. Access through Lord Jesus Christ and grace. So, let's look at the word peace. In Greek, this word is uh, irene, and when we typically think of peace, we think of, what do you think of when you think of peace, right? A calm feeling, Freedom from anxiety, freedom from worry, freedom from stress, you know, zen, right? That's what we think of when we think of peace. That's the subjective feeling. Well, this use of peace is actually different. This is not the subjective feeling of peace. This is the objective reality of peace, as in a cessation of hostilities, as in you are no longer in a rebellious war against God. That's what it's talking about. We have peace with God. An olive branch has been extended. We are no longer at war with God. And that's a profoundly important starting point for a relationship with God. Would you agree? To not be in open and rebellious war against Him? It's kind of hard to come together in a relationship where you're in war against somebody. Have anybody ever been in a, probably not, but anybody ever been in a disagreement with a spouse or a significant other? Are you tenderly holding them and embracing them as you're, as you're yelling in each other's faces? right? Does that do a lot for the unity of your relationship? No. So having peace with God, not being in our rebellious war is a profoundly important starting point about how we enter into this relationship with the Trinity. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Second word I want to focus on, access. The Greek here is uh, prosagogain, and the reason I'm telling you the Greek is because the Greek words, which is what it's originally written in, have, a, have some nuanced meaning to them that we need to draw out. So we have access, through Christ we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. So not only did Jesus Christ end our foolish and rebellious war against God, but he also provided us access to God. A better way to interpret this word might be introduction to God. So not just access, but actually taking us alongside and introducing us into the throne room of the Father. And that might not sound like a significant difference, but let me explain because in our Western culture, Christianity has permeated every level of it, we, can t we just assume that we have access to God. Would you all agree? You, do you know anybody who's spiritual but not religious? Anybody know anybody like that who would claim that? Um, spiritual, even people who are spiritual but not religious assume that they can talk to God whenever they want to and that God has his doors open for them and receives their prayers willingly and, you know, has, you know, wants to bring that. They assume that they will die and go to heaven. Well, do you know why they're able to assume those things? It's because our, our society has a Christian foundation. The reality of the situation is without Jesus Christ, you do not have access to God. Hate to be blunt, but it's all over Scripture. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, uh, you might remember your freshman year of college or going to a new school or moving away, right? You're trying to figure out where you are in the social hierarchy. You're trying to figure out, you know, who everybody else is and, and, and um, 
even who you are as a person. Well, I was really fortunate in my freshman year of college that I was befriended by a really cool senior student. And, and because of that friendship, I was granted access to everything. You know, the best Bible studies, because I was very holy. Um, you know, the best worship. No, I, I didn't do any of that, unfortunately. Um, I was granted access to the rooftop pool parties. I was granted access to, you know, people's mansion homes that they had the indoor theaters in, you know, just for the three of you. I mean, it was, it was, it was an amazing first semester of college, a great introduction into college because of my access through this friend of mine. Well, unfortunately, he graduated early. So I go home, you know, I, I do my Christmas break thing, and I go back to, for my second semester of my freshman year, and I found out the hard way that a few things had changed. The doors that had been open for me were no longer open for me. You ever walk into a room where you're uninvited, and everybody just kind of stops, and you're just like, oh, I... Uh left something here yesterday. I just got to get it and go, right? It's that awkward sense of things. Well, the reason I explain that that way is because it is only through Jesus Christ that we have access to God and can be in His presence and experience the fullness of a relationship with God. We have access through Christ. Let's, let's, let's talk about our last word, grace, charis. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's a good starting point, no longer an open rebellion, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access. That's really strong for our relationship. We can interact with God. Access to this grace in which we stand. This grace in which we stand. The word grace here means it's, it's shorthand for God's continuing love. It's shorthand for the sustaining love of God. It's shorthand for, being, for communing with God, for being in His presence, for experiencing the fullness of His presence. And I'm, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of entering into the presence of God, of experiencing the fullness of the relationship uh, with the Trinity. I joked earlier about some misunderstandings and heresies of the church, right? You caught that, the water and the clover and uh, Venn diagram. And we, we joke about heresies, right? We don't just take people outside and burn them anymore, um, thank goodness. But, but the truth is, when it comes to heresies, they're actually our misunderstandings of God are actually very serious things that can pull us away from the true God and away from this loving, caring, profound relationship with Him. And let me explain that to you. The danger of God as water, right, the, the modalism view, the idea that God just kind of has a different form that He takes whenever He wants to deal with you in a different way, like a different mask that He puts on, the danger of that is you never really know who God is because He's shifting all the time. Do you know anybody, does anybody have any family members or friends that are volatile? Like you never know how they're going to be when you walk into the room, or kids, right? They're, they're a good example. You never know like which, which one you're facing, like the Jekyll or Hyde. You know, like you walk into a room and it's like, are, you, are we good? Like are we happy? Are you stressed? Like how, you know, how am I feeling when it comes to this? The heresy of this, this modalism idea of not really ever knowing who God is is that it's difficult to feel safe and secure with Him. And we do this to ourselves all the time, by the way, when we, when we imagine sins, right? So take a common sin that you might engage in, right? If you um, stretch the truth to make yourself look better or you, um, you know, maybe you're, you're lazy and you feel guilty about that or whatever, whatever it is that's your particular recurring sin that you engage in. And think about day to day, do you change, does God change the way that He feels about you because of that sin? Do you have some days where God's, you know, you imagine God's feeling really angry at you and wants to just squish you? And then maybe the next day you think, oh, God doesn't really care about this today. 
And then the next day it's like, well, he's disappointed, but he loves you anyway. Do you, do you ever do that in your own mind? That's modalism. That, that's, that's God taking different forms in the way that he interacts with you. It's hard to find peace and security in that without a consistent view of God. So look at the second one that we mentioned, the three-leaf clover, and why it's dangerous to think of God as tritheistic. This is when you begin to think of God as three kind of separate persons that are very loosely connected. The danger with this is that you might start to emphasize one person in the Godhead over the others. And that can also lead to a distorted view of God and a lack of security. For example, if you emphasize God the Father and don't pay much attention to Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, you might love the rules and regulations and holy living that God calls you to, but forget the fact that God has provided a way for you that you don't have to earn his love. And you might completely ignore the feelings that are associated with a relationship with God. If you have the wrong emphasis on the Holy Spirit, well, then one of, you're the, one of those crazy charismatics, right, that's all about emotionalism. But the true danger of that is that sometimes your theology, your beliefs about God can get distorted. If you overemphasize Jesus Christ and not the Father and the Son, then you might just think that your life is one big blank check to do whatever you want to, and that holy living doesn't apply to you. Do you see the problem of, of, of these heresies and how it can distort the view of God in a day-to-day way? Touch on the last one, Venn diagram. Venn diagram God, partialism. The problem with this is that you don't realize that each part of God, each person in the Trinity is fully God and fully therefore fully able to choose and to invest into the full Godhead. You see, what's incredible about the Trinity is that each person in the Trinity is fully engaged in sacrificial love for one another. Each person is endlessly pouring out love for the other. Each person is endlessly glorifying one another, elevating one another, giving to one another. This is how, by the way, you know the phrase, God is love? We say, it's not a phrase, it's verse. Um, we say God is love. The only way that God can be loved, because love is an action, is if there's an object of love, and God is perpetually loving himself. Do you all hear me when I say that? Perpetually engaged in this love. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to give you an earthly example of this. Consider a perfect marriage, a perfect couple. There are none, but consider a perfect couple, what, what that would look like. According to Ephesians 5, that would be, you know, the wife willingly and lovingly submitting um, out of her choice to her husband, but then the husband taking that and then laying down his life for her and fully giving himself to her, putting her needs before his own. You see that cycle of love that happens, that cycle of giving love, of pouring out love that's engaged in that ideal relationship? And then imagine that you take a child, you take someone who comes from a troubled home, and you introduce this child into the home. And maybe the child has a difficult past, and at first the child goes into this house and isn't really sure what to do with all of this love, thinks it might, you know, maybe it's not really real. Maybe the child feels unworthy to receive it. Maybe the child is rebellious because the child doesn't understand it. But eventually, given time in that relationship and in that loving household, the child is changed takes on the qualities of that home and is able to learn how to love. You all follow me when I say this? The importance of the self-giving love and the relationship of the Trinity? Eventually, there's a heart change. What happens to us when we enter into this grace and relationship with the Trinity is what the Eastern Church calls theosis. I'm giving you, I'm giving you a lot of theology today, so I hope you're taking notes. I'm going to quiz you after. This is what the Eastern Church calls theosis, divinization, St. Athanasius, who we have to thank for our Nicene Creed, by the way, 
which is a real, uh, the best we have when it comes to uh, understanding the Trinity. St. Athanasius says, the Son of God became man so that man might become God. Now, that sounds pretty scarily heretical, so let me explain that to you. The way the church fathers explain this is, uh, think if you're a blacksmith and you have a forge and there's fire burning, right? There's heat, um, there's light, it's bright, um, and then you take a piece of metal and you put it into that fire. Does the, does the metal become fire? No. But does it take on the properties and the quality of the fire that it's in? Does it take on heat? Does it take on light? In that very same way, we are called to enter into a relationship with the Trinity that we might then experience Him in His fullness. I mean, in our, in our passage, you know, it brings us, love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, that God may be in us and we found in God. That's in John. This presence that we enter into, by the way, to circle back to fathers and leading their children, one of the reasons that as a father you go to church is not just so that you can get the right morality, right, for your kids. One of the reasons that you go to church isn't just, you know, because it's the right thing to do without any explanation. It's to lead your family into the presence of God that they might experience God in them and they in God. The process of entering into this relationship that is glorifying and loving and giving you know, it makes sense that God would glorify himself and his persons. What doesn't make sense is why God would choose to glorify us. But he does. And that's what he desires for us. That we might glorify in him and he in us. And the best part about entering into a relationship with God as a parent, as a friend, as a family member, is that we no longer have to stand in his place. And when we fail, we can just push, we can desire to push them further into the presence of God to supply what we lack. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us by your word, by the person of your Son, Jesus Christ incarnate, by the Holy Spirit that you have given to us in creation that you have established. I pray that we would continue to walk further and to enter in. God, I pray that you would pull our hearts and draw us near to you, that we might experience you in fullness. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Amen.